0: I must say that writing the Rommel biography was one of the most rewarding (laughs) books that I've ever written. Not financially, but it was a rewarding book because it's always nice to write a book about a hero. And he was a hero, as Winston Churchill himself said, in 1942, at a time when things stood very darkly for us. We had lost Singapore. We were losing the whole of our empire in the East. But Winston Churchill stood up in the House of Commons and said, there comes a time when you have to say across the dust and smoke of battle, across the lines that separate us, that you are confronted with a very great soldier indeed where does the legend of rommel the hero of the 20th of the july the hero of the resistance come from why is why are there so many streets in germany named after rommel one of the only generals i think if not the only general in rommel after whom a speed is named in germany uh, so sometimes you know ladies and gentlemen students come up to me after my speeches in germany youngsters and they say mr irving i've got a problem i hear you speak and I hear my parents speak and I hear my teachers speak and it's all different things and I don't know who to believe. Who were the real heroes and who were the traitors? And I would say to this guy, buy a, a map of your hometown and have a look at the index. And if this general you're worried about or this politician, if there's a street or town square named after him, you can guarantee he was an enemy of the German people. He was a traitor and a conspirator and he did everything he could to harm the German cause. On the other hand, if there's no street named after him, then probably he was a hero who went down fighting and did everything he could as a patriot for his fatherland. And it's a pretty good guide, in other words, this guide that's using your your local map to decide who the nice guys were, the good guys, the patriots. It works every time in Germany. Of course, they're going to have to change all the maps now in Germany. After a few years, they're going to have to wipe out an awful lot of streets. But in Germany, in the case of Rommel, we're confronted with a problem, because there's a large number of towns and squares, which uh, certainly used to be named after Rommel until my book's published anyway. (laughs) <laughs> in fact, in Stuttgart, there's even a town named after Rommel's, there's even a, an alley named after Rommel's adjutant called, <clears throat> called Rommel Adjutantengasse, because this is the alley in which that particular adjutant, a man called Helmut Lang, was born He still lived. He still lives there now, for all I know. So why do we find that there is a legend about Erwin Rommel. The answer is it suited these swine, these little miniature Wurmschner, as Adolf Hitler called them, these pathetic creeps, these schmucks, <laughs> these, these, these gentlemen of the 20th of July. It suited their purpose to try and make out that they weren't all schmucks, that right out in front of them they were commanded in spirit, if not in body, by one of Germany's most outstanding, uh, outstanding military characters, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel himself. He was no longer in a position to defend himself, but in fact the lying about him started only a few weeks before his death, and the the exploitation of his name started in the summer of 1944. So what was Rommel's career? World War I, he was an infantry commander. He was a lieutenant in the German infantry, finding himself fighting the Italians. He loathed the Italians. He was fighting the Italians in the Alps around uh, venezia Giulia, he thought very well much to his rage he found that he wasn't distinguished at the time when he thought he should be distinguished with germany's highest world war one decoration the famous blue max uh the le marit which is the blue enamel medal at uh, the cross that they have on a ribbon around their neck uh, the Lef- uh, lieutenant schoener the later field marshal schoener he got the medal and rommel thought he should have got it and rommel did the unthinkable I mean, you know how army officers are Rommel appealed. He wrote letters to every succeeding higher command and headquarters in general demanding an identical medal for himself. And eventually he got it. He got the Perle-Marit in this rather unorthodox way and he was very proud thereby to join the ranks of the great World War World War One legendary heroes like Manfred von Richthofen and of course Hermann there were These legendary German commanders, at that time only officers Lieutenants or, 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 or army captains or aviators who went around with the Blue Max, the Puller Marit. And it put him a class above a lot of his contemporaries in the interwar years because Rommel, unlike a lot of his contemporaries, had never gone, to the, uh, gone through the German General Staff. Very important to know this because it has a bearing on his last days. Rommel was not a German General Staff officer, although he rose to the highest rank in Germany short of Reich Marshal, Field Marshal. He had never gone through the German general staff, he had no book learning, he had uh, none of the knowledge of the uh, logistics, the build-up, the sense of time and space that a general staff officer acquires when he learns how to conduct successful battles. Rommel won his battles by other means, he did the unexpected, we're going to see about that in a minute. But this earned for him a lot of envy and a lot of distaste among the... It's rather like those who have been to West Point and those who haven't been to West Point in this country. There's, I mean, the word rivalry isn't strong enough. There's a, um, a, an element of envy and distaste and, and mutual distrust between the insiders and the outsiders. And Rommel remained all his life until the bitter end an outsider. The more successful he was in World War I, the more successful he was between the wars, because he was one of the exalted few who stayed in the German professional army War to war from the time he went into the army as a cadet until the time he committed suicide in october 1944 he was a german army officer and the success that he engendered during that period his military triumphs and victories aroused a great deal of envy from the german generals and officers who had been in the german general staff he had not paid any attention to politics in the interwar years he was part of the 100000 man german army and in the aftermath of the Nazis' seizure of power in 1933, he remained in the German army with a very lowly rank. In 1935, he was still only a colonel. He was in Goslar, commanding the local battalion, a kind of infantry battalion, when Adolf Hitler paid his first visit to Goslar in connection with uh, a local Nazi party rally. And the photograph shows this surprisingly small field marshal Rommel, at that time only an army captain or colonel, Um, escorting his Führer with a drawn sword in the grounds of the Goslar castle, and Adolf Hitler walking at a side much taller than this rather short and stubby and uh, unprepossessing figure standing next to him. Something about Rommel must have attracted Hitler's attention, because in 1936 he sent for him and put him in charge of security arrangements of the Nuremberg Party rally which Rommel did very well. When the usual gaggle of Gauleiters tried to follow Hitler in their motor cars when he drove off, Hitler said to, to Rommel, um, Herr, Herr August, please make sure that nobody follows me. I want a bit of privacy. And Rommel ab- obtained that privacy for his Fuhrer by planting an armored car across the road until the Fuhrer's car had driven out of sight. A couple of years later, when Hitler m- m- marches into Austria and then into the Sudeten territories and finally into Prague, Rommel is right at Hitler's side. He is appointed as commandant to the Führer's headquarters. Führer's headquarters at that time is a kind of mobile concept. Everywhere Hitler went, the headquarters staff went with him. And somebody had to be in charge of the routine arrangements of running Hitler's headquarters. And this was Rommel. And he used his influence. In that respect, very cleverly, he writes his letters back to Lucy saying, Today I had lunch with the Fuhrer again, and I had some very interesting discussions with him about tactics. Because he's the, the officer in charge of Hitler's railway train, which enters Prague, or enters Czechoslovakia, or enters Austria, he gets a proximity to Hitler, which the general staff officers don't get. And Hitler rather likes him. Hitler's an Austrian, Romand is a Swavian. Somehow they get on well with each other, and they talk a lot. And when, after the invasion of uh, Poland, Rommel accompanies Hitler to Prague, uh, to, to Poland, to the Warsaw, sees the devastation, comes back, writes to Lucy about what he has seen there, and about his enormous admiration for the Führer, who has managed to defeat a country the size of Poland in only 18 days. Rommel says to Hitler, mein Führer, the next time round, I want to be in charge of a division. I don't want to be in charge of your headquarters anymore, I want to do something. So he said he wanted a division, and Hitler said, yes, well, I think we can see to that. What kind of division do you have in mind? And Rommel, who was never a modest man, said, Mein Fuhrer, how about an armored division, a panzer division that me nicely? <laughs> now, panzer divisions, of course, with a crème de la crème. Everybody wanted, is like joining the 82nd Airborne or the 101st here. It's as though one of you had said to a President Bush, well, I mean, you might get away with it if you had the right connections, who knows? If you said you wanted to take over a division, and Bush says, what division do you want? And he said, how about the 82nd Airborne? And Bush said, fine, I'll fix it up for you. That's what Hitler did for Rommel. So by January 1940, those two men were like that, Hitler and Rommel. A great deal of mutual respect and admiration. And Hitler was right, because Hitler had somehow identified in Rommel a, a typical, trusting, armored commander who would succeed, where the slow, hesitant, prevaricating general staff officers would hesitate and fumble and fail. So Rommel got the 7th Armored Division, and he spent the next two or three months training it up for the campaign against France. He developed new tactics. He devised new methods of using armor en masse. He read the the works of men like Littleheart, and General JFC Fuller, and of course, General Charles de Gaulle. He read everything there was to read about armored warfare tactics. And, because he'd never been in a tank in his life before, but he climbed into a tank and found to his delight that it could go uphill as well as downhill. Could do all sorts of things. And he felt invulnerable. In fact, Rommel was the ideal commander because, in a way, he was invulnerable. He had that kind of rare, almost magical spirit. He could stand on top of a railway embankment in full view of the enemy artillery, in full view of the enemy infantry with machine gun fire thudding into the embankment all around him and bombs crashing down one or two yards away and killing his adjutant and people like that in the French campaign, and he wasn't touched, rather like Hitler himself. The two men had this kind of magical quality that protected them in some way from the forces of evil, from the forces of the enemy, and that in turn engendered an enormous loyalty among their followers. The men who served under Rommel swore by him. And so it was in the French campaign when Rommel was right through to the Channel Coast, and right on down to Cherbourg. And when the choice came in the winter of 1940, 1941, who to send to North Africa to help bail out Mussolini from his predicament there, Hitler, as he later said, found himself confronted with two or three names. Manstein, who had greatly impressed him in the French campaign, Schörner, or Rommel, or Dietl who had impressed him in the Narvik campaign in Norway and Hitler said you need somebody who's got his men behind him because in North Africa as I fancy the American troops are going to find out in Saudi Arabia you've got the local climate and conditions against you and unless you've got men who are prepared to go through thick and thin with you then you're not going to get anywhere. Dietl is one case, that might work he had appalling Arctic conditions in in Narvik to contend with. and Rommel I think he says, will also pull it. Eventually, the job fell to Rommel. Didn't go to Manstein, because Manstein, Hitler, felt, didn't have that kind of backing from his men. He was a General Staff Officer. So Rommel got the job of taking a light infantry division down to North Africa in January, February 1941. And these troops snuck into North Africa behind the uh, Italian position in Tripoli just as the British advance right across the North African Mediterranean coastline was about to be on the point of entering Tripoli. If the British forces had entered Tripoli and thrown Italy out of their Libyan colony, it would have produced very superior re- repercussions for the Italians, the allies of the Germans at that time. But at this fateful moment, Winston Churchill, who had no idea, of course, that Rommel had gone down to North Africa with his division, Winston Churchill wavered and he pulled a lot of vital forces out of the British forces in North Africa and sent them to a hopeless campaign in Greece instead. And so the British offensive faltered just before Tripoli and gave time for Rommel to get in there. Now, Rommel's instructions from the Italian high command and from, the, from Berlin were, thou shalt not on any circumstance launch an offensive against the British, thou shalt build up a purely defensive line, a sudden such a point, and thou shalt not proceed further to the to the east of this line and about that time we British began reading that particular code and we realized to our horror that not only were the Germans there but that field marshal the general Rommel was in command which we'd already come up against him in, in, in Dunkirk but we were reading the signals and the orders that were going to Rommel and we knew that Rommel was under orders on no account to launch an offensive and we believed that a German general would obey orders so we were quite happily sitting back with our arms folded when he attacked he totally disobeyed orders. He cut right across the Sinai Peninsula, cut off enormous numbers of British troops, 30 or 40,000 British troops, captured three British generals on the second or third day. <laughs> and this was one of his most glorious and gallant exploits. Within a few weeks, he had come almost as far as the Egyptian frontier. He had restored it, 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 the Italian sense of uh, pride. He had made it plain to Adolf Hitler that with a little bit more effort, You could, in fact, capture the whole of Egypt, advance across the Suez Canal, come up through the Middle East and join hands with his own offensive, which he was at that time planning against Russia. He could join forces somewhere in the Middle East with forces coming down through the Caucasus. Rommel opened up for Adolf Hitler new vistas. He became Adolf Hitler's favorite general. From that point on, mid-1941, Rommel's face was on the front cover of every German illustrated magazine and on the front cover of quite a few allied newspapers and magazines as well. There's a reason for this. To explain our setbacks, our failures and our reverses in the Middle East and in North Africa, we had to try and make out that we were up against a superhuman force who couldn't be stopped, namely General Rommel. So we had to build up our own enemy at that time to explain our own reverses. Later on, of course, when the tables were turned and they come to El Alamein, then you want to build up your enemy again to make out the fact that this wasn't just anybody we defeated, this was the unstoppable General Rommel that we had defeated. So you had two reasons, both of which militated in, 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 Rommel's, in Rommel's favor. We ourselves, our propaganda, built him up to an unstoppable, uh, brilliant tactically sound german general more than a match for any american more than a match for any british general but we will defeat him somehow this was the kind of story that went through the british newspapers from 1941 through to 1943. and Adolf Hitler realized too that the name of rommel was worth a lot because when rommel fell ill and when it was quite plain that the german forces who had retired into north africa in 1943 into tunisia were going to be defeated Hitler arranged for Rommel to be evacuated in time back to the continental mainland, but nobody was told. People were left in the belief that Rommel was still there in the pocket fighting on. His name fought on, even though the general himself had been evacuated to safety. We see in that period, November 1942, the first crisis of confidence between Hitler and Rommel. This is to be admitted. I'm not saying that the two of them were thick and fast friends right from the first moment to the end. Rommel went through a serious, nervous breakdown, shall we say, in November 1942, after the offensive began at El Alamein. He couldn't understand why he wasn't getting the oil and the supplies and the ammunition he needed to defeat Montgomery. He didn't realize that he was his own undoing, because he was constantly radioing back to Berlin saying, when are we going to get more oil and ammunition and supplies? The morale of my troops is at breaking point. If the British keep on the fight like this after El Alamein, then we can only hold out another two or three days. And the, Berlin would radio back to him saying, we've made inquiries of the Italian authorities, and the supertanker Proserpina is leaving Naples Harbor on the, on the 3rd of November, and is going to arrive at Tobruk on the 6th. And of course, we were reading the messages. We British were reading all these code signals. So we'd have submarines waiting outside the harbors, and every single ship that was sent out to Rommel with oil and with ammunition was being sunk. And he had got more and more desperate. And we know that in the Battle of El, El-, El- Alamein, which began on October the 23rd, 1942, Rommel was in such a desperate uh, position that he said he couldn't hold out for more than a few days. But Montgomery was in an even more desperate position. The British commander, Field Marshal Montgomery, sent a telegram to, to Winston Churchill on October the 25th saying, I think we're going to have to pull back. My offensive has failed. And at that moment, he was told by the British codebreakers on a secure line, hold on because we know from Rommel that he can only hold out for two days himself. He's collapsing under your weight. So Rommel was his own undoing. Because of his own garrulousness, his own talkativeness on, the, on what he thought were the secure coded transmissions, he was his own undoing. His oil ships were sunk. He ended up being hounded across North Africa. An amazing military feat, this is true. He had Montgomery's entire 8th Army after him, and yet he managed to rescue two or three hundred thousand German and Italian troops, and bring them all the way across the North African coastline into Tunisia, and form a new bridgehead there, with the loss of only very few men, and hardly any of his equipment. An incredible feat of generalship, which shows what a rotten general, really, General Montgomery was on the British side. Montgomery repeatedly tried to outflank Rommel, and take him from behind, and arrived only to find that the bird had already flown. Rommel arrived back in Tunisia, he was airlifted, the battle in North Africa went to an end, and he regarded himself, we know that from his diaries and from his letters, as a failure. For six months, he slouched around Berlin in plain clothes, wearing a trilby hat, unrecognized by the Berlin population because he's not in his famous uniform, and he hankered after a new job. In October 1943, the Commander-in-Chief West, in other words, the German Commander-in-Chief based in Paris, sent a report to adolf hitler on the weakness of the defenses in france against an allied landing and this was the first thing that made adolf hitler sit up he realized that something now had to be done because with the continuation of the war and the failure to secure a rapid victory over russia he is going to have to count on the full weight meeting the full weight of the british and the french and the german and the american troops in, in in the west there's going to be a landing somewhere It's going to be in France. Hitler's convinced of that. And it is now time for him to build up the Atlantic Wall and put a really tough tactical commander in charge. On November the 5th, 1943, he sent for Field Marshal Erwin Rommel and said to Rommel, I'm going to put you in tactical command of the entire Battle of France when it comes. You will be under Field Marshal von Rundstedt, who is Commander-in-Chief, but the moment the battle begins, the moment the British and Americans set foot on the coast of France, you will take charge of the battle. Thus he effectively told Rommel, I am giving you a last chance of glory. You've lost Libya, you've lost North Africa for the Italians, we've got the worst possible problems in Italy, the Italians have defected, they've come out on the Allied side against us, and effectively we have you to thank for that, Field Marshal Rommel. If we were still fighting in North Africa, the Italians wouldn't have defected. That's effectively what he said to him. However, I am such a friend of yours, I'm going to give you this chance of one last chance of glory. And from November 1943 onwards, we see in Rommel's private letters how he is convinced that he is going to pull it off, that he is single-handedly going to fight that invasion battle in France, and he's going to win victory for Hitler. He writes to Lucy, I'm convinced of victory. Every morning I get up and I look in the mirror and I think to myself, there's no way we can fail. Every week that passes and we strengthen our invasion defenses, he was driving great gigantic pointed stakes into the beaches all the way along the French coast. The, the, the stakes themselves were, were spiked with mines. Immense minefields, millions of mines were sown at a broad belt immediately along the coastline, all the way along France. The whole of a, a coastal belt was evacuated from people, towns were leveled to the ground to provide a field of fire for the guns, new guns were in place, huge areas were prepared for flooding the moment the Allies set foot on, 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 the, on the French coastline, rommel did what in fact the german general staff did, should have done for three years but of course they hadn't for three years they had been in france and for three years they sat on their fat asses and they had done nothing at all but now rommel came and he put a new spirit into the defenders there and he made it plain that not only could they but they would defend france and prevent the, uh, the anglo-americans from landing and hitler said to him you can be sure of one thing field marshal if we throw the british and the americans off the beaches then within two or three weeks, I will have pulled out a half dozen or a dozen German Panzer Divisions from the from the, the battlefield area, and I will have sent them straight back by train to the Eastern Front, and we will mop up the Russians, and then the war will be over. So Germany's final victory re- relies on you, Field Marshal Rommel. Now, it's important to realize this. Put yourself in Rommel's shoes. You've lost the battle in North Africa. You've lost an entire confiden- a continent. The the italian allies point the finger at you field marshal rommel is being responsible for this defeat you are not going to go down in the history books as germany's greatest strategic commander unless you can pull a victory out of the hat and your beloved Führer has given you this chance and that is going to be the battle of normandy you are not under these circumstances going to throw in your hand you're not going to throw in your make you're not going to make common cause with the traitors who are plotting against adolf hitler at this time because if you do you will not restore your reputation as a great military commander. This is one reason why I say all the indications are that Rommel was not a traitor. At this time, in the spring and the summer of 1944, he was doing everything he could to prepare France for the victory and to fight that battle through to the victory when the invasion came. Then something happened in April 1944 which was to change his life and, in fact, hurry on his death. A new chief of staff was assigned to him. His wife, Lucy Rommel, who was by this time a bit of a virago, a bit of an Amazon, a bit of a masculine woman in the early years, she was a lovely thing to look at by the photographs, but by 1944 she had him under his thumb. And she said that she'd picked a fight, unfortunately, with the wife of his chief of staff, General Alfred Gauser. so Gauzer would have to go. So Rommel had to get rid of Alfred Gauzer, who had been his chief of staff throughout the entire North African campaign, and replace him with another chief of staff, And the chief of staff who came to replace him at the beginning of April 1944 was an educated, piano-playing, gifted general staff officer by the name of General Hans Speidel. And the villain of the Rommel piece from now on is Hans Speidel, S-P-E-I-D-E-L, Hans Speidel, who later rose to become, bless his heart, supreme commander of NATO land forces in Europe. So with a certain relish, I revealed what I found out about him and his role in Rommel's death when the book was published. He arrived to take command of the staff of Rommel, Rommel's chief of staff, on about April the 1st, 1944, having come straight from Hitler's headquarters, where Hitler had given him the Ritterkreuz, the Knight's Cross, for his work as the chief of staff of an army group on the Eastern Front. Speigler, as I said, was an intellectually gifted man, a very clever man, but he was also up to his neck in the anti Hitler plot. He was plotting Hitler's overthrow, and Rommel didn't know it. In fact, if you look closely at the army side of the Hitler plot, you find how much it was very much a plot of chiefs of staff. People like uh, Stauffenberg, who was the chief of staff of Fromm and so on. It was all the chiefs of staff who were plotting without really Fromm and people like, without their superiors, knowing what was going on. It was the chiefs of staff who were the clever guys, who were doing the dirty work, and then when things went bad, they pulled back and said, it wasn't me, it was him. And that's exactly what we will find is going to happen with with, with Field Marshal Rommel. Round about June 1944, the Paris plotters, who were headed by the uh, chief of staff of the military governor in France, General von Struppnagel, decided it was time to try and win over other big names. And they sent the chief of staff of Struppnagel, a man called von Hofacker, to go and have a chat with Rommel. Now, Rommel was a pretty intimidating character. He was up to his eyeballs day after day, we know that from his diary, with journeys out to the front. He was preparing France for the invasion battle that was about to come any day.